0: February 2021, Bitcoin reached an all-time high of $58,000 a coin. Despite continuing price volatility, growing institutional support is raising expectations that this once obscure cryptocurrency could finally become mainstream. But how did we get to this point? And what are the forces that have shaped Bitcoin and the blockchain, the technology that underpins it? According to William Magnuson, associate professor of law at Texas A&M, The blockchain and the cryptocurrencies that run on it are at their core technologies for democratising money. To understand the forces that shape them, we therefore need to understand the forces that have shaped democracy itself. In his fascinating book, Blockchain Democracy, Technology, Law and the Rule of the Crowd, he takes us on a grand journey through the many eras that have shaped democracy and in turn the blockchain, from ancient Greece right up to the present day. you're listening to Technology in Prose. I'm Nikita Agarwal, and this week I'm joined by William to discuss his recent book, And the Politics of the Blockchain. William, welcome to Technology in Prose.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Nikita.
0: So I'd like to go back to October 2008. Um, It's been a month since the fall of Lehman Brothers, and the global economy is entering into a deep recession. At the same time, a person going by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto publishes a short paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. So to start us off, um, can you tell us a bit about what was proposed in that paper um, and what is its significance?
1: Great. Um... That's right. So Satoshi Nakamoto, who we still do not know his identity, even whether it is a he or whether it is a a group of people. But Satoshi Nakamoto is the founder and creator of Bitcoin, um, which we know as a virtual virtual, decentralized currency. Uh, And he wrote this paper in October 2008. Remember the context of this. This is the the, the height of the financial crisis. Uh, In fact... Um, Satoshi Nakamoto, when he first uh, started mining his Bitcoin, that is creating the Bitcoin, he even included in it a a note about uh, a headline from the Times of London talking about the, the the UK bailing out additional banks. So this is very much in the context of a systemic crisis within the financial system. Now, in the in the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto lays out his vision of how this cryptocurrency is going to work. And the basic idea is that it will be an alternative to traditional money systems. Instead of having a money system that is run by governments and large banks, we will have a money system that is run by the users themselves. Everybody who runs this program on their computer will be able to make decisions about how it runs in the future. And he uses some nifty and many people consider quite brilliant uses of crypto, um, of crypto analysis to protect the system, to make sure that the system isn't susceptible to hacking uh, or theft. And so that's the basic outline of the white paper is to show how we can create a money system that is virtual, that is online, that is stored entirely on computers, not in the real world, and let it be run by the people who are using it instead of being in the hands of big government and big banks.
0: And so, you know, when we look back, is, um, is, that, is the publication of the Bitcoin white paper, is that when it all began? Was that kind of blockchain, Bitcoin's like constitutional moment?
1: Yes, that was when it all began. The, the, the paper comes out in October 2008. Uh, it was just posted on a, on a website uh, or, a, or a mail chain. Uh, later on in January 2009, Satoshi Nakamoto starts mining the first Bitcoin that is creating the currency in the first place. Now, that's the creational moment. Sometimes they refer to the first time Bitcoin was mined as the block, as the genesis block. But the underpinnings of it go much further back. So um, and a a large portion of the book is devoted to explaining how we arrived at that moment. How do we get to this world in which Satoshi Nakamoto is thinking about and creating uh, this Bitcoin system based on blockchain and and. What you realize when you dig into some of his writings and also the writings that came before him was that this is a long-term development beginning with the very beginnings of the internet. Right? So in the early 1990s, this is when the internet is just beginning. Most of it is still being run by governments and universities. But there's a group of people uh, who are devoted to understanding how this internet is going to take off and how it's going to affect our world. Uh, and there was a group called the Cypherpunks that was particularly worried about it. They thought that on the one hand, the internet was going to open up all these avenues for knowledge exploration uh, and and sharing and community. But at the same time, it also opened up all these avenues for people to start, for governments to start spying and um, gathering data on other people in the world. And so they started going out and looking for ways to resolve these problems. How are we going to, avoid um, this government control of the internet. And they believe that the answer was cryptography, the, the lying, laying the groundwork for the code that is now in blockchain. And so they had all these amazing, uh, this amazing community of people who were writing back and forth about how to resolve the, the internet's basic problems of privacy and, uh, and and government control. And one of the answers that they found was, well. Ultimately what we need is a system of money because if we, even if we can com- communicate with each other, if at the end of the day we have to go to a bank to send money to each other, that's going to inhibit any ability to protect yourself from government intrusion and surveillance. And so they, this group of cypher, cypherpunks, they wrote a series of manifestos, um, the cypherpunk manifesto and other sort of Marxist sounding names um, and they laid out some of the groundworks for the, the rules of the community, how they were going to protect themselves. And, one, and also they started talking about how are we going to create this crypt, these cryptocurrencies. And they actually launched several cryptocurrencies. Most of them floundered. Well, I would say all of them floundered pretty quickly. Uh, but they also showed the way they laid the groundwork for Satoshi to eventually Create his his Bitcoin,
0: and so why did some of those you know decentralized currencies um, not work?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the uh, it's a it's a good question, <laughs> and and, uh, and it's one of the deep foundational questions both of the uh, uh, both at the beginning of the cypherpunks uh, studies, but also at the at the foundation of Bitcoin. Why why does the cryptocurrency take off and why does it flounder? Uh, and the answer ultimately is it depends on what people think about it. Right. And, and there's a there's a long discussion about how do you bootstrap a new cryptocurrency and make it acceptable? And you want to understand this is this goes to the very foundations of what money is. Why do we accept money? It's because we think that other people are going to accept it in the future. It's supposed to be a store of value, but it's only a store of value to the extent that other people are going to think that it is a store of value. Um, so now the well, obviously the one difference between a virtual currency that's run by computer programs and a real currency that is run by the government is that the government says at the end of the day you can pay your taxes with our printed currency Uh, there's nobody who says that about cryptocurrencies although there are now starting to be some states that say you can accept payments in cryptocurrency Uh, but at the end of the matter it depends on whether people think that this cryptocurrency is a value and whether they start accepting it and so a lot of the beginning years of uh, of Bitcoin were about trying to find people who would be willing to accept and pay using this cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. One of the uh, great stories at the very beginning was the the famous Bitcoin pizza where somebody wanted to, they said, look, I I really would like to um, buy a pizza using my Bitcoin. Will, Will anybody be willing to accept? And I forget the exact number, but it was some Several, several Bitcoin in return for a uh, for in return for a pizza, and you have to you have to buy, you have to buy the pizza and have it delivered to me. And so eventually, somebody stepped up and they they ordered a pizza from a local pizza joint, had it delivered to them, uh, and they were paid in several Bitcoin, which now will be worth in the millions of dollars. So it was a very expensive pizza for the person who bought it, uh, a great deal for the person who received it. Uh, but it started it sort of kicked off this idea. of, Okay, look. This is a fun project. It actually works. nobody's uh, nobody's having their money stolen, although we can get to that in the future. Some people did have their money stolen. Um, but but it was the idea of let's let's start to create a market for it. Uh, and the and the bitcoin pizza was one of the beginnings of it
0: and so do you think that it you know two thousand and eight um and the kind of growing disenchantment with elites and you know, anti-capitalist sentiment, the populism we've seen since then, you know, was that really pivotal in? getting Bitcoin off the ground in a way that, that other currencies that came before, cryptocurrencies came before, were not successful?
1: Yeah, I do, I do think there is a there is a strong... When you read the, the writings of the people who were engaging in Bitcoin at the very beginning, there's a strong libertarian, anti-authoritarian bent to them. And that, I think, includes even Satoshi Nakamoto himself. So a lot of the discussion about why Bitcoin was valuable was... Uh, distrust of what the government was doing both about their surveillance of citizens but also about what they were what governments were doing with their own money right? there was this worry that uh, governments were just printing money and devaluing all the money out there currently uh, and they seemed that seemed to them like an unfair deal they're just handing out money to uh, big banks and so bitcoin had programmed hardwired into it a hard cap on how much money, how much Bitcoin could be issued. There could only be 21 t- million total Bitcoin ever uh, existing. And so that assured people that, okay, we're going to have a limit on just how much can be issued. We're going to have rules that are set into code that can't be changed, um, that will make sure that people know what's going on with the system. It's all public. We can go and look at the ledger to make sure that people uh, are actually receiving the ca- the Bitcoin that they said they're going to receive, that miners are receiving the uh, the compensation that they need for maintaining the system. Bitcoin miners are a, a group of uh, individuals who run um, uh, high-powered servers and computers to solve the difficult math qu- equations that underlie Bitcoin. And so they serve the, the basic purpose of maintaining the system. Turns out a lot of them, um, they've, they they have been heavily centralized within China where they can get Uh, lower energy rates uh, because one of their great expenses is energy. But the basic idea is let's make sure that the system is open to all. It will be uh, any user who wants to can download the program and start running it on their computers. They can make money as a result. So that incentivizes them to get involved and also to make sure that the system itself works well. And it'll all be an alternative to the government and it will be anonymous. Nobody can know who you are. So those are all sort of elements of it that I think added up to this general libertarian, anti anti authoritarian, anti government bias within the within the the community.
0: And so it really does sound like the ultimate kind of democratic technology, and and that is the lens that you apply in the book, right? Like thinking of blockchain. Um, through the lens of democracy, decentralizing power, distributing um, knowledge. But but you write, uh, and I quote, that the blockchain's great promise is that it's inspired by the same principles that inspire democracy itself, but this also happens to be its greatest flaw. Uh, so what do you mean by that?
1: Yes, uh, so the what I meant by that is that, and this is one of the, the the core arguments of the book, is that if we are to understand a system that is built around principles of democracy, then we need to look at how democracy works and how we have structured our own democracies. So the idea behind Bitcoin was we're going to have a system that anyone can participate in. They can set their own rules and, uh, and everyone has the same amount of say. But of course, when you actually start implementing this, both in governments and in a money system, there are all sorts of forces that lead people to centralized power even if you create a system that is designed entirely to say everybody has one person one vote right there are ways to get around that system right in democracies how do you get around one person one vote well if you're a very wealthy individual you could pay people for their votes and of course that's illegal but maybe you uh you pay for advertisements on facebook and then that ends up uh changing the way that people vote right it's very hard to keep power decentralized when uh, all these other elements out in the world are not central uh, decentralized. Or all these other elements out in the world, like money and influence and connections, those are not widely dispersed. Some people have more of them and some have less. And so democracy is built around trying to limit those powers of, of centralization where they're considered deleterious to the democratic system. In Bitcoin, there were fewer of these checks. Uh, there was nothing that prevented somebody from going out and buying a bunch of computers and running all the programs themselves, uh, running the running the, uh, the 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 difficult math equations that underlie Bitcoin. There's nothing that prevented a miner from going out and buying a bunch of computers and becoming uh, a, a superpower in the world of Bitcoin, so that they received more Bitcoin at the co- at the expense of others. And the other problem, of course, is that. Lots of people actually don't want a system that is decentralized and is run by everybody else. Some people actually want a system that's simple and they can just go to one person to do everything for them. They can rely on somebody else. There are these strong market forces pushing towards centralization. Right? It just makes it's a lot easier if you can rely on a big institution to save your bitcoin passwords for you to keep track of where all your Bitcoin wallets are, to uh, give you a a way to easily transfer money from one person to another, right? All these things can be done. You can keep your, you can save your password. You can, uh, it's called a private key in the Bitcoin world. You can uh, keep, you can write down in the real world what all your Bitcoin wallet numbers are. You can uh, send down a transaction yourself using your computer program. But of course, most people, the vast majority of people are not, sufficiently computer savvy to do all that and so instead they would prefer to be able to go to a big company like coinbase which is one of the big cryptocurrency exchanges today and just say hey look i'm going to send you some money from my credit card and you guys handle all the rest and so when that once that starts to happen once there's regular people who are not super computer computer savvy and who are just investing in this because they think uh, it will be a value in the future then the groundwork is laid for greater and greater centralization in the system. And once you do that, in many ways, it's, it's beneficial for the users, but it gets away from the foundational principles of Bitcoin itself, which was aimed at being the system that would be run by its users. Today, Bitcoin is very much run by a few large miners in, uh, in China and then these large cryptocurrencies exchanges located in various places, including in the U.S.
0: I want to kind of pursue the idea that this system is actually flawed, right? So do, do we just accept that democracy is flawed, um, but it's the best system that we have, um, right? So we don't really have direct democracy. We have representative democracies. And, you know, our crypto exchanges like Coinbase, just our new representatives. And is it is that in itself flawed because it doesn't live up to the initial like utopian dream? Or are they not managing power well?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, uh, is democracy flawed? I think the answer is decidedly yes, given all the evidence so far. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there are, there's, 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 there are costs and benefits of, of democracy and democratic systems of decentralizing. And so in many scenarios, actually, what we really want to do is put, our, uh, put control of decision making within trusted decision makers. The problem, of course, is how do you figure out who the trusted decision makers are uh, and and in the in the cryptocurrency world, and particularly in uh, in Bitcoin, many of the players that have emerged as large players, at least in the historically, were not so trustworthy. So I, I, one of the great stories, I think, from the from the Bitcoin world uh, that I like to that I think is emblematic of what's going on, or is emblematic of some of the flaws, is the Mount Gox story. Uh, so anybody who has been a follower of Bitcoin for a while knows the story. Uh, and it's sort of emblematic of everything that that bedevils the system and why it has struggled to get off the ground so far. Although now I would say it's off the ground. So in 2014, the, the largest company in the industry was a Bitcoin exchange. That is, it's a centralized place where you go and you can send them money and they'll buy Bitcoin for you and they'll store your Bitcoin. Uh, the largest Bitcoin was... A, Bitcoin exchange was a place called Mt. Gox. It was called Mt. Gox uh, because the founder of it really liked Magic the Gathering, the uh, the card game. And he had originally launched a website called Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, and he had envisioned it as a place where people could go and trade uh, Magic the Gathering cards with each other. That didn't take off, although apparently Magic the Gathering is now having a big uh, uptick. So, uh, So maybe it would have today if it were launched today. But in 2014, it was not so hot, and so that fell down. And instead, he changed it into um, MTGOX, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, and he changed it into a Bitcoin exchange because he thought this was a more promising business. And it was quite a quite a promising business. Uh, it transformed itself into this place where people could buy and sell bitcoins in exchange for real money, like dollars or euros. Remember that you could get Bitcoin entirely through mining it on your computer, but you have to be pretty computer savvy in order to do that. So most people just wanna be able to go to a centralized authority to do it. Uh, in 2014, it was handling around 80% of all Bitcoin transactions. So it was a, you know, a giant in the industry, way bigger than the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or the London Stock Exchange with respect to stocks. Uh, but on February 7th, 2014, it just stopped working. Uh, people, it froze trading, website went offline, nobody could withdraw any money, any Bitcoin. And two weeks later, it filed for bankruptcy. Uh, it turned out that Mt. Gox had discovered, and those are actually, these are, these are his actual words, it just it, it discovered that it had, quote, lost 850,000 Bitcoins. Uh, and today's value, that would be about $40 billion. So an enormous amount. Even then, it was actually quite, uh, quite valuable. Uh, and it just didn't know where they had gone. Um, now, of course, it had been if Mt. Gox had been a real stock exchange, it would have had to subject it to itself to the Securities Exchange Commission laws. If it had been a bank, it would have had to subject itself to anti-money laundering rules, but it wasn't really a bank. At least at the time, it wouldn't have been considered a bank. And it also didn't seem to be a commodity. Well, it didn't seem like Bitcoin didn't seem like a wheat or, a, or, a, a, or, or oil. And so commodities regulators weren't particularly paying attention to it either. Um, And, of course, the basic problem with Bitcoin, or at least this hack of Mt. Gox, was that there was just no remedy, right? Because of the structure of the Bitcoin system, it was very difficult to determine who had stolen the money because Bitcoin accounts are not listed in people's real names. That's the whole point. We want to have some anonymity. Instead, they're just uh, uh, these wallets or addresses, public addresses. They're just a long string of numbers and letters totally unidentifiable in the real world. And so while people knew that this money had been transferred out of Mt. Gox's accounts, they had no idea who had taken it. And there was no way, there's no chargeback system in Bitcoin. Once money has been sent, you can't, there's nobody you can go to, to complain about it, it's just gone. And so this money was gone, the the $40 billion. Now there's a a group of people who've devoted their lives to figuring out what happened at Mt. Gox. And there's some interesting theories, the book gets gets into them. but we still have not recovered the, the Bitcoin that was stolen from Mt. Gox, uh, which was a tremendous number, 850,000.
0: I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a really um, shocking story. I'm wondering, though, um, how typical is this of the blockchain? Like, is this the exception or the rule?
1: Yeah, so that was the, by, by far the largest hack of a cryptocurrency exchange. And I should note, it, it seems we don't, we don't know the full story behind it even six years later you know, or six and a half years later. Um, there's no, there's not been, it, it was not a hack of the Bitcoin system itself, right? They did not find some flaw within the blockchain code. Instead, what appears to have happened is that they were able to access people's passwords from the flawed Mt. Gox database, which of course gets to an even greater problem, which is that since we now are now starting to have all this greater centralization. This introduces new sorts of problems because well you have to trust the centralized authority, just like you had to trust you know the government or the bank before. Um, so it was a it was the largest hack that's occurred. Uh, nothing like it has occurred, but there have been really, I would say, regular hacks of cryptocurrency exchanges. Actually, just this month, the 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 US government indicted a group of North Korean hackers for having stolen, I think they said eight one $1.3 billion in the last year. So this is a huge, it is a huge and important part of the industry. The fact that people are, uh, it's it's being targeted heavily by hackers. Uh, I would say that the Mt. Gox case was the most shocking. And more recently things have gotten, right, this was the very beginning, the first four years, first five years of the currency, things weren't as, um, formalized and protected as they are today. Today, I think Coinbase, which is one of the big cryptocurrency exchanges today, they're going to file for an IPO. There's an there's expectation that they will IPO. These are much more reputable institutions than Mt. Mount, Mount Gox was, which was just run by, a um, I think it was like a 29-year-old Frenchman who had had no experience in the industry before. So things are starting to get formalized. The hope there will be not, not be something like Mt. Gox again, but there is this element of hacking and criminality within it. Uh, that sort of has not been eradicated yet
0: to continue this sort of analogy of you know democracy and democratic society like how much of this is just a product of you know the blockchain being kind of like an early society that is not that well regulated and like social norms are not yet developed so it's just a matter of time before these problems settle or we find ways to regulate them
1: yeah uh, so i do think that a lot of the most dramatic stories emerged in the first few years Um, the, the other, the other very dramatic story was the Silk Road case. There's, I think there's now a Netflix show that's come out about, about the Silk Road case. The Silk Road was this early online marketplace that, uh, was one of the biggest places that people went to spend their Bitcoin and what it sold, since this is all anonymous, or most people thought that it was anonymous, it basically sold drugs, stolen credit cards. I think they even had a section for, they had a category. It looked like it was like a. Bargain basement version of Amazon, and they even had a section, a category devoted to hitmen and, and 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 all sorts of awful crimes. So it was run by a guy who went by the name of Dread Pirate Roberts, and um, uh, it turns out he was an Eagle Scout from Austin, Texas. He was an, he was eventually identified and arrested, and he's he's in jail now. But, but adding to the the craziness of the situation, even the FBI investigators who were investigating him. A couple of them realized, wow, there's this anonymous currency and we know who owns it. Why don't we just ourselves start exploiting it from them? So they started telling him through uh, pseudonyms. They said, look, we know who you are. We're going to tell you uh, we're going to tell the FBI who you are unless you start giving us Bitcoin. So they extracted Bitcoin from him. They eventually get arrested. It turns out that they were laundering the money through a company called BTCE, um, this Russian based cryptocurrency exchange, and that is connected, we believe, with the Mt. Gox hack. So it all comes back to these early years are just filled with stories of criminality and the crimes and hacks and thefts. Um, a lot of that is from the fact that at the beginning, the people who were interested in it were people who were just libertarian, anarchistic, and also criminals. There was a group of criminals that were attracted to it. Nowadays, more and more people who are uh, large institutions are now interested in it. They think that it could be a store of value, a potential hedge against gold or the U.S. dollar or stocks. And so now it's becoming more formalized and more regulated. A big part of the industry has been the development of regulation. And so a a good part of my book discusses how should we regulate a system like this? And so um, one of the most important questions has always been, is Bitcoin something that regular people should be investing in? And so the, the, the body of law that asks this question is securities law. Securities law asks, should people be investing in uh, the stock or equity of a company? And so, of course, the big question at the very beginning was, is Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, are they stock that should be regulated under the securities laws or are they something else? Are they money? Are they commodities? Are they some entirely new category? And the SEC, it took the SEC a long time to start issuing guidance, but eventually they started saying, okay, yeah, we think that these are the characteristics that are emblematic of a security and that would apply in a cryptocurrency st- standpoint. These are the characteristics that would uh, make them not applicable, and therefore n- the securities laws would not apply to these cryptocurrency exchanges. And the basic question was how much power is diffused within the system, um, our, our investors' Uh, investing money with the expectation of profit based on the efforts of others Of course all those questions are just they're not easy to answer in a cryptocurrency scenario uh, the more or less the answer today is bitcoin's not crypto Bitcoin is not a security it's not subject to the securities laws uh, but other many other cryptocurrencies are and so as regulation has increased, the market has become more orderly although there's still a significant amount of disorder as well
0: and you're describing the position in the u.s right um, but there's also been you know quite a few different approaches to regulating Bitcoin um, in different jurisdictions do you think there are any particular jurisdictions that have got it right or that are you know doing it the right way
1: so the United States in my opinion has had a has been reasonable in the way that it has approached it uh, some jurisdictions have been more favorable to cryptocurrencies and others have been less favorable uh, probably on the the very far side of the favorable to cryptocurrencies would be the island of Malta. They have, in the very beginning, been active about trying to encourage companies to go there and list and, 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 and headquarter themselves in Malta. They actually even renamed themselves, or at least they branded themselves, the blockchain island, and, the, and they were going to make all of government be run through blockchain. They were going to issue university diplomas on blockchain. Um, and so they, they were widely viewed as being basically a very lax reg, uh, uh, jurisdiction for regulating Bitcoin. and they did get a number of companies to go and relist over there and then headquarter in Malta. Um, the, a lot of Asian countries are um, they've been one of the leaders in changing their regulations and adopting them to, uh, to, to account for Bitcoin. Uh, so Hong Kong, Singapore have all been very active on this, and I think they, they have reasonable regulations as well.
0: I'm also wondering whether there are like technical fixes, um, so changes to the design um, and the way that the blockchain works that could help to reduce um, the scope for criminal activity, um, illegal activity.
1: Yeah, so there, there it's always been a so the question of how connected is Bitcoin and blockchain to criminality is a foundational one. Um, and I don't know if there, there there might be technical fixes, but most importantly, There is a there's a widespread perception that Bitcoin is anonymous and it protects the identity of the individuals in it. And I think that has encouraged criminals to use it because they say, well, this is going to be relatively anonymous. As a matter of fact, law enforcement has adjusted in response to what's going on to the to a lot of the activity and in crime taking place on on the blockchain. And so there are ways to track people down. On the blockchain, One of the most important points is that blockchain itself and Bitcoin is public. The idea behind a blockchain ledger is that everybody can get access and see it. So you can go and check, okay, yeah, my wallet has this much money in it, um, and I've sent it to this person. And unlike cash, you can actually track it all the way back to the very beginning. So every Bitcoin today, you can figure out where, when it was created, by whose wallet or, or address, and every place that it has gone. And its existence. You know, it started in this address, then somebody, then they sent it to this person, and they sent it to this person, then they sent it to this person. Now, of course, you don't know the, the, the identity of the person, but you do know that it went from this address to that address wallet. Now that's helpful if you're a if you are a policeman, because you're saying, okay, I happen to know that this crime occurred on this date, and they sent and and also on this same amount of money was sent from this address to this address. More importantly, if you have ever listed, if you said, hey, anybody out there, um, if you want to give me some money, here's my public address. Well, then all of a sudden it's no longer anonymous. And there are ways that this information can leak out. And so I think there's a perception that Bitcoin is more anonymous than it actually is. In many ways, it is less anonymous. Of course, if you're going through a bank, then maybe money is not very anonymous. But if you're using cash, that's pretty anonymous. Um, Bitcoin is somewhere in between where... Sure, you don't have to go through a bank, but you do have a public address out there that you have to have control of. And if it ever leaks out who owns that, then all of your transactions are all of a sudden exposed to the public and law enforcement. So the short answer is there are technical fixes to make it more, make it less likely to have crime. But already there uh, there are ways for law enforcement to track down where Bitcoin is going.
0: Yeah it's really interesting there's like there's a kind of tension isn't there between the sort of founding ideals of the um of the blockchain and then um the kind of necessities given you know what's happening with it and what what's happening with bitcoin particularly today um one of the things we've seen is institutions uh, institutional adoption of blockchain has resulted in kind of more use of permissioned or private blockchain um, which is sort of ant- antithetical really to, to the idea or the like the sort of philosophy of the blockchain. I find that quite fascinating.
1: Yeah, so we haven't talked a lot about how there is cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but then there's also the technology underlying it, which is blockchain. And so blockchain is just, a, it can be used for anything. It is a ledger. It is a structure of containing information uh, that just lists. It's just a long record that is supposed to be tamper-proof and that is supposed to be decentralized. But of course you can use that for anything that requires record keeping. It's not just cryptocurrencies, it's not just money that needs to be kept record of. You can also keep a record of, uh, of supply chain, where things have moved. You could keep a record of, uh, of stocks, who owns various stocks. And so people have, uh, ever since the very beginning, people have started to think about ways to use blockchain in other ways outside of cryptocurrencies And as you mentioned, one of the important ways in which it has shifted is thinking, well, is there a way to make it less decentralized? Because maybe we don't want everybody to be able to participate. Maybe we want to be able to exclude some people from making decisions about the future of this cryptocurrency or the future of this blockchain. And so there's been a move towards permission blockchains, which actually are really not public in any way. They're they're supposed to be centralized within a few people who are able to control it. Uh, And companies are starting to look into it. Walmart has experimented with using it for its supply chain. Um, There are a variety of startups that have tried to use it to settle securities transactions, sort of the the plumbing of of our stock exchanges. So there's a lot of efforts to use it outside of the cryptocurrency world. Again, none of those have really taken off. Um, Still to to date, the most important use for it is Bitcoin and a couple other cryptocurrencies. Um, Elon Musk seems to be a big fan of it. He's always tweeting about various cryptocurrencies that he's now uh, in on. Um, so, But there's been a lot of developments in the last few years about major companies starting to accept money, including Tesla. Uh, they, they've said that they're going to accept payments in Bitcoin. So as we get more acceptance of it by big, large institutions, it may increase in value. It may change. Uh, it, may, it may become less criminal-oriented and more sort of transactional-based. Uh, and those would be, you know, positive signs for where they where where it's going.
0: So I want to come back to Musk, but um, but but before that, um, blockchain is is pretty um, environmentally unfriendly. It uses a lot of energy. Can you explain why it consumes so much energy and like why has it been designed in such an energy efficient inefficient way?
1: Great. Yeah. So the so the these are the two great critiques or problems with Bitcoin and blockchain in general. Is one is criminality, and then the second is. Uh, the energy, energy use. So the basic reason why we are concerned about the energy use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that in order for them to be run, in order for them to be maintained, Bitcoin miners or other miners have to run computers that are very highly powered and specialized to solve difficult math equations over and over again as fast as they possibly can. And the most important expense here is energy. Right, So there the, there's been a great hunt for cheap energy by cryptocurrency miners. So they've opened up in all sorts of places. Right, There's been China has been a big place. Uh, people tried to go up into uh, Sweden and Norway where they thought they'd be able to get cheap energy and also have it be cold so they wouldn't overheat their computers. Uh, strangely enough, there was actually a large Bitcoin uh, farm in Texas, which is hot but we had cheap energy or we thought we did until this past week. now it's apparently very expensive. Uh, So the most important thing is in order to run these computer equations very quickly, you have to expend lots of energy. And so it not only uses a lot of energy, it incentivizes future use of energy because the system works on a system called proof of work basically says as much, we will give you more Bitcoin if you use more energy. And so as a result, there has been a rapid increase in the amount of energy that's being used by the Bitcoin system, as well as the other cryptocurrencies. There was a study done a few years ago that found that uh, cryptocurrency or Bitcoin miners were using up the amount of energy used by the entire country of Ireland, and which is just an astounding sum, but also what's even more amazing is that there just aren't that many transactions in Bitcoin, or there didn't used to be. And so even when they're not doing very much in the cryptocurrency, you're still generating all these huge environmental uh, concerns about energy use. And so if transactions increase in the future, every time that the value of Bitcoin increases, the incentives to use more energy also increase. And so as a result, we sort of had this system that's just designed around environmental harm. And so that's been a big a big concern.
0: I and mean, so that kind of brings us a little bit back to Musk in some ways, because we've seen, you know, the price of Bitcoin go crazy. in like the last month, I think it's doubled in the last two weeks. Um, you know, questions about whether this is going to become like more mainstream and more like institutionally accepted, but you've also just described this real, really significant environmental like cost of, of, of Bitcoin and the blockchain. So how do we square all of this? Um, You know, can it be made more environmentally sustainable and or is like Bitcoin mania going to end? Not necessarily because of the environment, but, you know.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, so there are are technical fixes that are aimed at trying to reduce Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies' use of energy. Uh, Again, none of those have really taken off. (laughs) So we don't have, uh, there are ways to solve them, but they have not been solved yet. Again, this has been a long time. It's been 12 years. Um, Hopefully it will be solved in the future, but at least under our current system, there are strong incentives for Bitcoin's energy use to increase. Now, what will be a way to solve this? Well, one of the most important ones is a a proposal to change cryptocurrencies from a proof of work system to what's called a proof of stake system. Basic idea there is let's not have the system reward people for how much energy use they're using. Let's instead reward people for how much stake they have in the, in the cryptocurrency. So if you own more of the cryptocurrency, you will be rewarded more. And that would make sense because people who own more of a cryptocurrency are presumably more committed to the value of the cryptocurrency. So they'll want to make sure that the, the cryptocurrency goes in appropriate, long-term, sustainable uh, ways. Of course, we don't know if that's the case. And we don't know of any um, systems that have actually worked out in practice with the proof of stake system. But there are these technical fixes. Um, but as to whether or not uh, Tesla's <laughs> adoption of it will somehow solve the problem, uh, I wouldn't think so. Although maybe it would, uh, if everybody starts buying a bunch of Teslas now as a result, maybe those would, the, two, the two would offset each other.
0: So I have to ask you, do you own Bitcoin?
1: So I, to my great regret, I do not own Bitcoin. Although in connection with the writing of the book, I did decide at one point to buy a coffee using Bitcoin. So that would be a great story, just explain how, how I did it. Uh, and it turned out to be a much more difficult process than I thought. So in order to uh, get buy a coffee using Bitcoin, first you have to figure out a place that accepts Bitcoin, which frankly, there are not that many places that do it. And so I went to, I pulled up, I Googled you know, cafes in Austin that accept Bitcoin. So I come to this website, and it lists a bunch of, a long list of places. I start calling them up and first one says, no, I've never heard of Bitcoin. I don't know why I'm on that website. The second one says the exact same. The second one, the third one says, no, we stopped doing that five years ago. Uh, so I go down and probably at the 10th or 11th, I finally find a place that says, yes, we, uh, we accept, we accept Bitcoin, but we don't accept Bitcoin ourselves, uh, our payment processor does. And so the next step is, okay, I know a place that it has coffee. And that accepts bitcoin so now i just need to get some bitcoin and pay it so in order to do that i needed to open up an account at a cryptocurrency exchange which asks you for all sorts of information why you're buying it what you're going where you got the proceeds where you receive the proceeds that would be going into it they ask for a copy of your driver's like a picture of your driver's license um, then they have to take several weeks for you to transfer money into their account so eventually I did that. It took two weeks to have uh, my money into the Bitcoin account. I have a Bitcoin account at a cryptocurrency exchange. But it turned out that the cryptocurrency exchange itself did not offer payments. Instead, it just held it just held the wallet for you. So I had to open up another account at another company and go through the entire process again. Uh, that takes also several weeks. In addition, each time you do this, there's fees. So I keep adding up fees along the way. Eventually, I have the Bitcoin in my payable wallet and I go to the crypto, uh, I go to the cafe, I order the, uh, order the Bitcoin, I send the money, I order the coffee, I send the money to this payment processor. It works. I ended up paying, I think, $12 for a cup of coffee, but, uh, but it was worth it because I learned how to use my Bitcoin. So in the future, uh, maybe I will, uh, it'll be a little bit easier.
0: William, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. Um, it's really been great chatting to you. I really enjoyed the book. So thank you again.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Nikita.
0: That was William Magnusson discussing his latest book, Blockchain Democracy. On the next episode of Technology in Prose, I'll be joined by Aaron Roth to discuss his new book, The Ethical Algorithm
1: it's necessary but not sufficient to have ethical people in charge of deploying algorithms and you know it's also not sufficient to sort of just write regulation that says you know like don't deploy sexist algorithms because these things are sort of unintentional side effects of the standard machine learning pipeline we actually need to think carefully about how we can go about using that pipeline and designing algorithms that do not have discriminatory properties or privacy violating properties that we want to avoid.
0: Thank you for listening. And until next time.